This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company, America's leading salt maker. Learn more at jacobsonsalt.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N salt.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with like paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Why Food, the podcast about career changers, innovators, and entrepreneurs. I'm Valerie Lomas. And I'm Ethan Frisch. So we are here today with a very special guest. We have Rahim Jallo, the co-founder of the Jinjin Brothers brand. Um, and they have this amazing ginger juice that's sold at markets throughout New York. And they also have recently opened the Jinjin Cafe in Harlem. So before we start our conversation with our fascinating guest for today, I want to make sure that we have some time to talk to you, Valerie, about this amazing new book that just came out and uh, and the recipe that you have in it. Yeah. So Tuesday was actually the publication date for Rage Baking. That's a great name for a book. Yeah. It's um it it came out on the heels of the Iowa caucus. And so Rage Baking, it's by Kathy Gunson, Catherine Alford, and it's a really awesome um, compilation of recipes and stories about women. And, you know, the idea of this book was born actually out of the Kavanaugh hearings because a lot of women, the authors included, found themselves not quite sure how to cope with such, like, BS from the government and feeling like they didn't really have a voice. So a lot of women, they went into the kitchen and they started baking. And that's kind of the premise of the book. And, and are you possibly one of one of those women who has a recipe in the book? Yes. Uh, I, I, <laughs> not, that I'm, not that I'm asking a leading question or anything. Right. No, um, I'm really honored that they asked me to contribute. So, you know, I wrote a little story about the rage that I have felt and how I have been kind of saved by the kitchen and baking. But there are a number of phenomenal women featured, um, from Julia Tertian to Jessica Harris. Dara Goldstein. Dara Goldstein. There are, uh, like, a lot of women that you probably know, like Carla Hall, and then some that you are going to get to know who have really awesome stories. Um, and it's just funny that it, you know, it came out on the heels of the Iowa caucus. Like, we don't know who won, but we know who didn't win, which were the women candidates. So And the Democratic Party overall, which <laughs> is just in shambles. Right. So, um, you know, definitely check out that book if you can. What's your recipe in it? Uh, lemon bars. And can you, can you, I, I, not to spoil. Uh, yeah, there's no, there's, okay. <laughs> there's nothing to spoil, but you know, I just, I talk about my story and how, you know, when life gives you lemon, sometimes you have to just make <laughs> lemon curd and put it on a crust and cut it up and call it lemon bars and enjoy the rest of your day. Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I want to get to our guest, Rahim. Yeah. Welcome, Rahim. Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, you have such an incredible story, uh, moving to the U S um, as a teen, from Guinea with your your brother was your only family member in the entire country and still is and you ended up really just kind of pouring yourself into your studies and you know you are you are always a curious kid right absolutely I um I'm more curious than my parents actually <laughs> what to do with um but yeah coming to the states um at a fairly young age in my early teens joining my brother who was already here that came at, a, at an even younger age than I did. I came at 13, he came at 11. Uh, it was kind of, um, it was an exciting time. I mean, we're coming to the U.S. from West Africa. In, right. in a lot of ways, it's this, um, on, you know, this promised land of sorts that you think will be the, you know. Yeah. Essentially the promised land, if you will. <laughs> right. Uh, it and was exciting. And, yeah, yeah, so you found yourself, you know, immersed in your studies. Yeah. You studied engineering. And, you know, you ended up getting a graduate degree in material science from, like, the MIT of Europe. And you found yourself um, moving to New York City. And you and, and it was during the recession. It was 2010. I think sure. anyone who graduated that year. Oh, the worst. 
same. I graduated 2008. Yeah. yeah. I graduated law school 2010. Well, I mean, we say the worst, but would, would the three <laughs> of us be sitting in this room together? Exactly. Here been, we are. Turning out okay. That's how I wound up in restaurants. That's that's how I ended up, you know, pouring myself into a food blog instead yeah. of uh, focusing on getting a law job. But so, Raheem, you know, you ended up entering the hospitality sure. industry. So I actually, um, I actually ended up going to grad school uh, after partially due to the recession. I finished undergrad in 2010. So I came back to New York because I, um, I couldn't get the type of job I wanted in, in, uh, in the, um, I didn't want to stay in the Midwest, essentially. Uh, I loved it out there, but I didn't, I wanted to move back to New York to join my brother, who was the only family I have here. And um, so when I get back to New York, it's 2010, I can't get a job anywhere. No one can get a job anywhere, especially given that I wanted to get into management, consulting, or investment banking. Um, so I end up um, going back into hospitality because I knew how to do that. and something You did that, that in undergrad, right? Correct. Like I essentially supported myself through college waiting tables in Michigan. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I actually, I kind of want to get into like the heart of what you're doing now. And then I think we can go back and kind of talk a little bit about how you got there. Sure. But so you and your brother, Muhammad, you yeah. ended up starting a business, um, where you created, you know, this amazing recipe for this ginger juice. Um, What is kind of like your overall goal and mission with the Gingin Brothers? Especially since the business has grown beyond that original project. And and I know that you have a pretty expansive uh, set of goals. How does that all, what what does the business represent to you? So, so, you know, the the business very much is a part of who we are. So when we came here at, at, at such a young age, um, one of the things you miss the most when you go from when you go to a new place is the food and drink you grew up uh, consuming, right? Uh, so And that's even within the same country, let alone if you're moving from a completely different continent. So we realized that um, over time, as we travel the, the, the U.S. and Europe, you'll find food and beverage products in mainstream supermarkets from all over the world, right? You go to your average... Uh, supermarket chain, you can find food from Latin America, from Asia, um, things uh, from Europe, if you're here, if in Europe, American stuff, right? Uh, hardly anything out of Africa, right? or at least nothing that's recognizable as being a brand that this is something that truly represents Africa. And not because it doesn't exist, it's just that, like, um, it, it just, no one has done the work of properly branding it and bring it to the, to, to, to the mass market. And we would complain about this all the time. Uh, my brother and I, uh, and eventually we got to a point after after school where we felt, hey, we have the skill set, we have the education, uh, we're in a position where we can be the ones that start this. You know, there are a few things happened that prompted that, but <laughs> I'll gloss over that part. Um, so we started the company back in 2015, uh, Ginger and Brothers, to develop and bring to market food and beverage products that are inspired by traditional African recipes in the most authentic form. And our mission really is to make uh, food, drink, flavors, and aesthetics of Africa an integral part of American and global culture. And so. You had grown up with, with your mother as, a, as an entrepreneurial role model. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, so my mom, um, my mom is the entrepreneur that I don't think I'll ever grow up to be because <laughs> she, um, my mom dropped out of school in fourth grade to help raise her, fam- uh, her, her siblings because her mom, my mom passed away. And she was in a, I mean, she lived in a village deep in Guinea. And she ended up taking a, a pair of shoes that she was given as a present and taking them to, to a weekly market that they would have in, you know, in, that, in that region uh, where everyone would come and get their supplies for the week that they normally wouldn't have in the villages. Um, and she took these, these shoes there, sold them, bought stuff out of the market, brought it back to the village and started reselling that and turned this into like a weekly thing. Over time, she started going further and further away to bigger and bigger cities, all the way to the capital city. This was at the age of of 10 or 12? Started around there, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know, crazy. (laughs) But that's kind of what I grew up around, and yeah. And I mean, little did you know, growing up around, you know, your mother who kind of had that entrepreneurial spirit, that you yourself, you know, would go from like taking insanely difficult, like, organic chemistry and like beyond like I can even name calculus mathematics type courses that you would kind of tap into that entrepreneurialism yourself. So can you tell us a little bit about like the how and why you and your brother, um, how you, how you 
started the Jinjin brand. Sure. And like, what were some of the challenges that you faced? Like having an idea of like, okay, we want to like make this juice based off of this thousand year old recipe of our ancestors. Like, how did you go from like the idea of that to actually bringing it to market? Because it is in markets now. It's, sure. it's in Whole Foods all across um, the yeah, New York area. In, and It's in Whole Foods throughout New York. Um, we'll eventually expand into the Northeast, but we sell online and we ship all over the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. So, um, so how'd you go from the idea to like actually like... Tell us about the entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, a piece of it is that... Growing up around my mom, like you said, helping her out uh, when I was a little kid, I would go to, to our stores with her. I would uh, help her do the, do the books. Not that I knew that I was helping her do the books, but she'd just tell me what to write down and what not to write down. So you were the math guy in your mom's the, business. Yeah, I was the math guy. Um, and, and a note taker, everything. Everything that I could do. <laughs> that I could do. Uh, and this started at a really young age. And the second piece um, to essentially what gave us the courage to go from idea to, to, to product was really the, the, immigrant, the, the whole immigrant mentality that you hear being talked about or how, generally speaking, you go to a lot of countries, the immigrants are very entrepreneurial. It's not so much that it does something, you know, unique about the individuals that come per se, but the whole immigrant journey is something that makes you entrepreneurial, right? So just, if you think about me talking about the U.S. being a promised land, just the idea of getting out of the, getting into some of these countries, like Western world in general, is already uh, something that requires a lot of creativity for a lot of folks. Not that I had to deal with that since I was fairly young. Uh, but once you get into a new land, you don't speak the language, right? That's point number one. You get here, you're 13, you don't speak the language, and you have to deal with everything a young teenager has to deal with. So you become very good at problem solving, you know? And that leads you to that, and eventually, later on, coupled with, uh, having an engineering training, right? That puts you, I think engineering is the best training you could possibly have for an entre- uh, to be an entrepreneur because it, what you do is you learn to break down problems and rebuild them, right? And build solutions from it. And that's all um, being an entrepreneur is. You're faced with a challenge, literally every day is just solving a problem. Uh, so from idea to product was that. We have this idea, how do we get to a product, right? Um, was it hard to, to was it hard to decide on what your first product was going to be? Tell us about how you made that decision and then what you ultimately chose. Um, it it wasn't easy, but it, the, the the choice was kind of made for us uh, in the sense that um, the the find the vision of what we want to build, you know, over time is this thing where pretty much. Um, creating this platform where African farmers, African producers are in Africa or out of Africa, living in the States, will be able to bring their products to market, right? And working backwards from that, you know, creating something that makes, because uh, the best way to change culture, really, in any culture, is the perception of Africa, for example, is to change the way, the best way to change culture is to change the intangible stuff, the food, music, art, and things like that, right? So for us, uh, that finished product is just too broad. And we step back, realize that most people of West African descent, uh, uh, most of the African restaurants that are in New York City carry this ginger drink that we grew up drinking. And most West Africa actually consumes this. And we ourselves love this uh, beverage. We notice that all the African restaurants in the city, you can find it, but it's very inconsistent. Sometimes it's too sweet, not sweet enough. It's poorly branded, if, if at all branded. Right, so it made it this niche thing that only folks that know it can go seek it out. Whereas if it was properly made and it's you know uh, merchandise in the mainstream supermarkets, the Whole Foods of the world, and places like that, and uh, the average person, ginger lover, would walk in and see it and read it and say, "This sounds interesting. Let me give it a shot." Right. So we picked that product principally because of that, and then there are other business reasons regard, uh, related to the direction food and beverage is going in general that made us go with that. So it's a so your first product was a ginger juice. Tell us tell us what, yeah. what went into it, how you made it. Sure, make make us hungry. Yeah, right. and how um, who did you get the recipe from? Whose recipe is this? So my mom comes back into play again, right? So my mom, uh, we called my mom. Right? When we wanted to do this, when I started, we picked the product to start out with, and literally one day we're talking and we said, <laughs> "How do we make this?" We realize that none of us actually knows how to make this. We've grown we've grown up uh, drinking it. Uh, we know there's ginger in it. 
we have a general sense of what it, what's in it, but we never really actually made it, you know. Um, we called up my mom, got her recipe, and actually called um, uh, called my aunt, who was also, she's like an older sister. Um, she raised us, uh, you know, with my mom, of course. Um, and she, we took their recipe and started playing around in our kitchen, right, and tweaking it, changing some things here and there. And at the time, I was managing a bar in Harlem, so we would make it in these water jugs and bring it to the bar. And every time I strike up a conversation with someone, a customer, and tell them, hey, we have this product we're trying to add to the menu at the bar, and we're not sure how people will receive it, or would you mind, would you, you know, would you like to give it a shot and uh, give us honest feedback? This way, they would think it's for the bar. It's not my product. So they'll be brutally honest, right? So we iterated through that. We'll go, too much sugar, too sweet, not enough lemon. We'd go home, we'd do it again. We did this literally with hundreds upon hundreds of people. Uh, that's how we developed the product. Wow. But the perks of being a bartender. Yeah. yeah a lot of perks of being a bartender. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually, so I'm curious, how did you guys end up financing this vision, right? So you have the yeah. idea, you have the recipe. You've tested you got lots it. Of lots of feedback. Lots of feedback, of feedback. From, <laughs> from Harlemites. <laughs> Sometimes more than we wanted. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, but like, how did you guys end up financing this? So, you know, when we figured out what we needed, we dove into what we need to launch. How do people, how are CPG brands funded, you know? And can you tell us about what CPG brands are oh, CPG. for those yeah. of us that oh, yeah. don't know? So CPG as a category is, is consumer packaged goods, right? And, and broadly speaking, it's pretty much almost everything you buy in a supermarket from detergent and deodorant to food and beverage. Right? Okay, got it. So, right? so we consumer play packaged goods. Consumer packaged goods. Um, and we, you know, we looked at how people normally fund this. And I, I, around the same time, I was really into, you know, Silicon Valley culture, the tech. I'm, I've always been into that and, like, knowing how adventure world is working. So, anyway, we looked into all of that and realized, all right, we'll need X, Y, and Z, and we need about $1.25 million to get this thing off the ground. And we started looking around and realized there's no way we can access $1.25 million. So we started scaling back from that. Okay, what can we cut out? How can we do this? We got down to about 500K. Still, that was way too much than, I mean, we, could, we, could, we couldn't cobble together 10 grand if we needed to. Was right? the business operating at that point? Were you no, making no, no. and selling? This was, this was before the launch. This was in tandem with the feedback okay, stage, it. the figure out what the logo looks like phase, all of it, all at once, right? I would go work at the bar from like 2 or 3 p.m. to about midnight, 1 a.m., go home, crack open my laptop, do research, read up as much as I can on CPG. On and make funding. some models, make some yeah, financial models. build out financial models. Like, which you know, you've had a lot of experience doing with your mom, essentially, and then as an, as, as an engineering and material science student. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, would, I, I enjoyed actually doing those things because at one point I wanted to be an investment banker doing m and deals. So I had already done a lot of that. Um, so so um, you have this number. You got it down to 500K. So, so now what? I mean, I know a lot of people like Ethan, you can probably speak to this. And, you know, we start off with these business ideas and we essentially just bootstrap it, which means, you know, you're working a job full time and you're taking like every penny you can mm-hmm. squander to finance your dream, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I started Perlap and Merrill, I, I had left a job, so I, I was able to devote full time uh, all of my time to the mm-hmm. to the new business, but but I had no money. I was running it out of my apartment. Were uh, you paying yourself? I was definitely not paying myself. It took us a year and a half, at least two years, to be able to pay ourselves minimum, just to get to minimum wage. And this we're a two person company, so the the paying yourself a salary <laughs> is is one of the hardest parts about being an early stage entrepreneur. It, you know, one of the funniest thing um, early on when you'd go to these, uh, you know business counselor though you're just reading up things in the small business you know yeah. sba website they're like you must pay yourself you know what i mean like, like you, with with what money, <laughs> right? right sure you you do not come in with funds you need to pay yourself first and pay and like listen if the end of the month comes you need to pay your rent and the only money you have is just like 500 dollars you have allocated to your business you're paying your rent and vice versa you know um so yeah we when we started out, I mean, we really started this with less than a thousand dollars, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. So we just work every. Um, my brother was working in financial services um, uh, for 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 an insurance company, and 
I was still, you know, in the, in the hospitality business in bars. So I would go work at the end of the week, pay whatever bills we have, cobble together the money that's left over after we send some money back home to our family and pay for the next thing, you know, whether it's uh, a logo, designing the logos or design, Which is beautiful, is. by the way. Your logo is, it's really Thank you so gorgeous. much. Yeah. Thank you. We went through close to 100 designs to settle on that. So <laughs> now, now Every, everything that you've done, you've, you've gone through so many uh, Iterations, versions of it. Yeah, yes. to find the right, the right one. Yeah, my brother's a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk briefly about the relationship that you guys have. You yeah. know what? I'm sorry. We're going to take a quick break. I've lost track of time. We're going to take a quick break, and All then right. we'll come back and talk about talk about you and your brother. Family. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company. Jacobson's Flake and Kosher Sea Salts have garnered worldwide favor for their beautiful presentation and pure taste. In addition to an extensive assortment of pure sea salts and infused sea salts, Jacobson Salt Company also produces a line of salty confections, honey, cocktail salts, seasonings, gift sets, and other pantry staples. Harvested from the cold, pristine waters of Neatarts Bay on the Oregon coast, Jacobson Salt Company is a favorite amongst professionals and home cooks alike. Founded in 2011, Jacobson Salt Company's mission is grounded in craftsmanship and community, maintaining the vision of providing the very best cooking ingredients, from hand-harvested sea salt to single-origin honey. More information on Jacobson Salt Company and their extensive line of products can be found at jacobsonsalt.com. And we're back. This is Why Food, and we're joined this week by Rahim Jallo, who is the co-founder of Jinjin Brothers, a juice and juice company and cafe now, recently in Harlem. Sure. Uh, right before the break, we had uh, started to ask Rahim about the relationship that he has with his brother and, and the process of being a co-founder and business partner with a, a close relative. Right. It's essentially yeah. a family business, yeah. right? Yeah. So tell us, tell us about that dynamic. How do you work together? How has the relationship evolved over the years that you've been... D- You've been building the Does business. he treat you like his little brother? <laughs> no, it, it, it's great. I mean, you know, my brother is my best friend. Uh, I'm really, we, we, we're very complimentary in many ways in terms of our strengths and weaknesses. He's very, um, he's a perfectionist. Uh, I'm a let's do it and deal with the consequences later kind of guy. Uh, so, you know, when we make decisions together, usually they come out pretty good. Uh, so that's a really good balance. It's, um, uh, he's the best partner I could possibly ask for. He just happens to be my brother. You know, that's the Any challenges time. of working with a <laughs> yeah, close family member? It's just smooth sailing member. all the time. Oh, and, no. and did you guys get along, like, as kids, like, back in Guinea when you were really small? Did you did you get along or did you kind of, like, bicker and fight? Oh, yeah. We were super tight. Like, we were in, inseparable. Uh, we, we had fr- parents of our friends that didn't know which one of us went by what name. Because people referred to it when their kids were going to our house to play, they'll say, I'm going to see, to Papi and Chano's house. That's what they called us, you know, Papi and Chano's house. So they didn't know who was who. So we're yeah. super <laughs> you know, we grew up very close. Um, we fight every day, you know, especially related to the business. But it's never, you know, it's, it's never mean. It's never, um, we never finish uh, a fight and not be talking to one another. Uh, and... We would let the business go to shit before we let our relationship uh, suffer. So, yeah, that's yeah, not... I think that, that tension that exists between co-founders is so important and so underrated. Yeah. It doesn't get, ta- doesn't get talked about a whole yeah. lot. But, I mean, my co-founder and I have this relationship. We argue all the time. Yeah. And that's where the, the business lives in those yeah. moments where, where we disagree for really good reasons and we come together with a third solution that neither one of us would have come right. up with on our exactly. own. exactly. You realize yeah. that you're both wrong. Yeah. And, but that only, that only comes out after you've come up with this way better idea. Like, yeah. God, that sounds like a, a relationship or a marriage. It's so much. It's it, like you're over-communicating. So a, a good relationship or yeah. marriage. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you're over-communicating so that, you know, everyone can end yeah. up on the same I, page. I, I definitely spend more time talking to my business partner than I do to my wife <laughs> on a daily basis. Uh, Maybe you should take advice from your business partner. <laughs> uh, no, Shala is so, she's so laid back and cool. I mean. She's cool. You did very well with that one, Ethan. Well done. <laughs> but, um, advice from me off air. So, um, I mean, that's awesome that like you, you are able to have this amazing business partner. 
I'm curious though, like about getting investors for the business, like how did you make the decision whether or not to, to raise money and how did you raise money? And just, can you speak a little bit to that? And did you have, I mean, did you have any specific challenges being an immigrant, being a person of color with raising money, maybe in the traditional ways? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, it's <laughs> it's been extremely challenging. This is the type of business we're looking to build. It's really a venture scale kind of business. Uh, it's not. What does that mean? Venture scale essentially is something. Well, you know, we're not trying to build a lifestyle business where it's just my brother and I and a few employees, maybe a couple of locations of our cafes, and you know, building a nice, comfortable business where we're making, I don't know, a decent living. Uh, we're looking to build something fairly massive in terms of, you know, um, the scale of the business itself. Not so much to build some, we're not trying to build something big for the sake of bigness, right? We're trying to build something big because the mission we started out with is to have this impact where African food, drink, culture, flavor, literally everything associated with Africa is um, kind um, of normalized in our normalized culture the world, right? and acknowledged, really, because exactly. it's always the influence has always been here. It's always been there. It's yeah. just a matter of like us acknowledging like, oh, actually, like, because I mean, I'm from Louisiana and it's like, oh, the food that we eat is like the same food that's being eaten in a lot of West Africa. And so many yeah. ingredients that are now kind of classic American ingredients came yeah. from West Africa. We're carrying yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Like American foodways the one, have a, a history. In the one I love is collard greens here in the States, right? So collard greens used to be this crop that they would uh, intercrop between uh, cotton uh, cotton cycles you think because it's a nitrogen fixer. Um, and in West Africa, we have a lot of uh, leaf-based sauces, you know, cassava leaves, potato leaves, and things like that. So, you know, the slaves that would work the fields here in the States, they would have this uh, crop that would... Essentially, it's only grown because it helps fix the land to prepare it for cotton that would just normally would be thrown, uh, put to waste, right? And uh, they realized they could use that to replace some of these ingredients that they had back home, and that became an American staple. There are so many examples like that, right? So for us, the mission is to normalize the original version, right? <laughs> so that's what we're going for. Got it. So, I mean, so you guys are making a decision, like, how to, how to get this capital. And, like, in the meantime, you ended up winning a lot of, like, pretty prestigious awards. You won a grant from FedEx. Yeah. Um, you won, was it an American Entrepreneurship Award? Yeah. And you even... They've, they've rebranded to Unvolve. Okay, yeah, they're, awesome. They're a great group. And yeah. you even won an award from a radio station where you got a printer? <laughs> yeah, so we... <laughs> That's we, not helping you get to that 500K, but... We had such a hard... I mean, we've had such a hard time uh, raising money. I corrected to be in the present because it's ongoing. Uh, that we would literally apply to every competition we could get our hands on. I remember one day um, there was this competition uh, was clearly tech focused, right? Um, I applied to it, and you know you had to do a video pitch, and it was close to the deadline when I found out about it. So I did a video in my bedroom, right? I, I watched the video, and I'm standing back there, I look like one some creepy dude just pitching someone. Um, but our mentality was. We'll enter every competition simply because if that one person that reviews it, watches it, they know we exist, right? And had we, oh, the, the only upside to not being able to access money is it made us do all that. So that's, we wouldn't have entered the FedEx competition if we had our money and et cetera. I mean, once you could also argue that they would be busy building our business instead of running around entering competitions, right? Um, but the Prenner story is one of those competitions. It was organized by a radio station. We're a finalist. Uh, we didn't win, but we won a Prenner because it was um, uh, uh, sponsored by um, a, a, a Kanika Minolta, I think it was. And it was at a time when I needed to run the FedEx office to print labels pretty much every other day. And finally, I had one in my room. It was a lifesaver. <laughs> and so how... Uh, what were some of the challenges? What are some of the challenges that you're facing in the fundraising process? What are some of the objections that you've gotten from investors who you've spoken to who have decided not to invest? Yeah, uh, yeah just talk us through what's been, what's, what hasn't worked. Um, so, all right, I'll, I'll give a bit of background on CPG financing because I think it's relevant to me. Well, and I think it's also worth mentioning that you, you opened a cafe a few months ago, and so yeah. that's a whole other side of your business. Right, which yeah. we definitely a, want to get to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, so, you know, it's, 
if you're going through retail, right, and usually consumer packaged goods, except for some specific niches where you can just go direct to consumer now and that's becoming more normalized. But if you're dealing with food especially, retail, in many ways, you have to go through, yeah. right? Especially for your, you have a fresh product, yeah. it's be refrigerated, it's made fresh regularly, and it's heavy, it's hard to ship. It's heavy to ship, yeah, hard to ship. So if you want to go through retail, it's really the, 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 the formula is fairly simple. Right, if you have a product that works, you have a proven concept, you have distribution, right? Now your job is, it's a ground game. It's getting in stores. Um, it's, it's, more, it's marketing, you know, merchandising, people being in stores, just bodies out there, making sure product's on the shelf, it stays on the shelf, um, and then it rotates. And that's expensive, right? Honestly, building a business is expensive. But, um, so if you don't have access to capital, that's not a game you're going to win, right? I've watched so many s- small food and beverage brands die, not because they don't have amazing products and founders, but, you know, simply because they can access funding. So because of that, you need a lot of money. You need 250K-ish to, go, to get to market, get a proof of concept going. Another $751.5 million at a seed round, right, to go get it some sort of regional distribution, build out a team a little bit, as well as a marketing team to have a regional coverage, and then maybe another 5 to $10 million round. Right to go to go somewhat national, right? But most even that you're not covering the whole thing, and then you know another round of maybe thirty to fifty million dollars to reach escape velocity. I think right? I think most consumers have no idea how expensive it is for a small brand to yeah. launch in a grocery store chain. And uh, Valerie's going to give me a hard time because I'm going to crap on a big company again. Like no, I haven't. <laughs> Whole Foods is is actually in a lot of ways. It makes me crazy. They're uh, the worst because they <laughs> they talk a really good. And I know you sell your product in Whole yeah. Foods, so no, no, no. Uh, please like go to Whole Foods it's, and get some ginger yes, juice. Yes, go to no, Whole Foods. Listen, I mean, it's like we're speaking the truth here, right? Yeah. I mean, we sell at Whole Foods, but that it doesn't change the fact that I, you haven't even finished talking yet. But I let you go through how they how they make well, it think, very difficult. I think that what I uh, they they talk a really good game about right. supporting small businesses, their their whole local brand initiative. Right. But then if you actually want. Once once you're actually in the store, it's very expensive to stay on the shelf right. to to promote your product. When when a consumer buys something that's discounted at Whole Foods, Whole Foods is passing that discount on exactly in almost every yep. case to the company that made the product. So if you go go buy ginger juice at Whole Foods and it's fifty percent off, that's that's fifty percent out of we out of su- your cut, right? Exactly, yeah. not out of the Whole Foods cut. Did you they approve of the? Do you approve of the you sale? Have no, you have no you have no power. <laughs> They're in that just like surprise, fifty <laughs> percent off you. <laughs> <laughs> on paper, yes, you do approve of it. But they have these promotional uh, schedules. Everyone does it, right? So you're competing against, right? You're sitting next to, I don't know, a kombucha brand that just raised $20 million, right? They can afford that, right? You're not paying yourself. You can't afford that, right? So now for us, the challenge was this. So that's, that's, that's the landscape. That's the kind of money you need. Honestly, that's the kind of money you need to build any business at scale, like a venture scale business, right? This is true. Ethan is nodding. Ethan right? agrees. Well, I think we're in a sort of a different category, and I don't want to take away from yeah, Ryan's time, but no, no, please, but right? we have a direct-to-consumer retail, a, retail, a product that's ready for direct-to-consumer uh, e-commerce uh, sales. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we work with some specialty grocery stores, but we don't work with any big chains, re- grocery store chains, because mostly because we haven't needed to. Mm-hmm. We've been able to build a direct-to-consumer business because we have a small, light uh, shippable. product, shippable product, yeah. exactly, and it's so much harder, and it's shelf stable. It doesn't need to be refrigerated, so it's so much harder for for a product like yours. Which anyway, and talking on talking about shitting on big businesses, Amazon <laughs> has normalized yeah. free shipping. Oh my god, there's no right? such thing as free shipping. There's no such thing as, free, no such anything. Thing as free shipping. There's there's right. Somebody's got to pay I for it. People <laughs> like, paying for it, or the customers. I, I feel for like it. I'm going to give. If you look at the, if you look at if a business like FedEx or UPS or whatever, right? These are you know, 50, 60, 80 billion dollar a year businesses. What do you think that money is coming from? Someone's paying for shipping, yeah. right? So if you're getting free shipping, you're, you're paying for it somehow, but someone's paying for it. Um, so yeah, that's the landscape of financing. So for us, we thought, okay, what we need to do is get a proof of concept going, right? We did everything I told you about researching the brand, getting all the packaging right, doing like this market research, really getting a product that we felt people love. We started going around New York City, uh, knocking on, so we, we set ourselves a lunch date and leading up to it, like 48 hours before our lunch day, we didn't have our bottles or our labels. So we worked 48 hours straight without sleep. I'm not joking. We drove to Long Island to pick up the labels, drove to New Jersey, sat in the parking lot until they applied it to us, brought it back, went to, uh, to our incubator kitchen, worked overnight. 
uh, finished it like an hour before the market, like a street fair that we were supposed to launch it on, right? And so we did things like that. And then we started going knocking on doors. Any mom and pop shop, any bodega, anyone that will allow us to put our product on their shelf will put it. Even in neighborhoods where we feel like, you know what, we have no business being here. People are not going to buy cold-pressed juices here. We just wanted to know, do people actually want this product, right? So we did that for six months. We sold about 70 grand worth of products. You see, we're still working full-time job, just my brother and I. Um, and, and we, in that time period, we're coding Whole Foods. We get into Whole Foods within seven months of our launch, right? This is hard for people. There are businesses that are well-funded that spend years trying to get in there and then get in there. Right, there's a whole story about how that happened. <laughs> Did it have to do with the incubator? You were at Hot Bread Kitchen. Were you just bottling there? Or were you part of their incubator program? Or we're, we're using the space. Just to using the, use spa- the space, the commercial but no, space. But the, but the team there was extremely supportive. Um, there's um, the, like they, they they did help us a lot, right? I when I was doing the product test uh, testing at the cafe or at the restaurant, uh, the bar that I was managing, that's where I met the the director of the incubator. He was one of my guinea pigs. He, did, he had no idea what he did. <laughs> and it was at a time we were looking for commercial space to produce in. And the, the bar was literally five minute walk away from where I was. I had no idea it existed. And he tells me about it as I ended up there. His name is Kobla, and he's been extremely supportive to this day. You know? um, so we, we get a distributor, right? Because we're like, okay, if you get a you need distribution, hard to get. We get a distributor, one of the best in the Northeast. We get into Whole Foods. So we feel like, I, we sell, sold 70 grand worth of products. Just put, someone will give us money, right? We switch focus to trying to raise money. <laughs> Cricket, <laughs> right? And it's, you know, every story, every, every uh, story on the face of the earth we've heard is everything from we had this guy we ended up on a call with that was a managing director at a, at a big food-related fund tell us, hey, I got your product, I sampled it, it was great. But I feel like, you know, people in the coast like New York and California and places like that would love this product, right? But I don't think your average middle American would actually like this, you know, the spice level and all that. Oh, the middle America argument. Right? I go, I tell him, I, I went to high school in a small town in like the boonies of Michigan, right? <laughs> we had two Thai food restaurants, the Chinese restaurant, and we would like have competitions who can eat the spiciest stuff. Right, and who do you think lives in New York City or in LA? And you know, is that the people that went to Nebraska, that went to, that grew up in those areas? Right? Yeah, we're all transplants. We're all transplants. Except for Ethan. No. You know, I mean, our our, I mean, the majority of our customers are are in Middle America. Our right. our biggest, best, most enthusiastic customers online, home cooks buying spices. They're in Iowa and Idaho and Nebraska and Ohio and just spread across the Midwest. I have, I ship cases of ginger to Montana, yeah. Wyoming, Nebraska. Like this, this, I mean, I, I, I hate to get off topic here, but this translates into our politics. And people, that's why people, you know, on the coast or whatever are shocked at the political landscape of a country. Right? You're completely ignoring the majority of the country. And these are people that are fairly, you know, normal, right? Uh, yeah, we all ju- want seasoned food. Right, we all want seasoned food. <laughs> we all want, like, a and delicious, be, spicy ginger beverage. And there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, so the financing has been super difficult. I feel like uh, part of it, I mean, like, you know, you touched on it, being a person of color, we've, we've had so many experiences in rooms, right, that have made us be like, okay, you know. I, I had a journalist from Cranes, the financial publication here. Uh, we got on a call with them because we had won the, uh, the American Entrepreneurship Award, right? And they, they had a huge PR firm that, you know, that represented the, the award uh, organization that faci- was trying to facilitate some media pre- appearances for us. If Johnson Cranes gets on a call with us, we're in Midtown, like, you know, amazing office, and we're talking, and we're telling him about a drink. He goes, so is it like one of these, um, um, you know, Mexican ices you find in the, you know, in the side of the street in like the Bronx that they sell on the cars on the side? Like, we just told you it's an organic, you know, cold-pressed HPP product that we sell at Whole Foods, right? And he goes, well, I asked because I feel like the price point, he had asked us about the price point. The price point seems, you know, a little high for essentially this little African, you know, drink, you know? We've had experiences where investors would talk to us and you can see in them, right? When we tell them all of our accomplishments, it's like they're trying to tell us, you know what? 
Like, that's cute. You know, if you talk, tell them about our ambition, like how big you want to build this, they just can't see it, right? So, you know, it's, it's a lot of things. It's um, Africa in general, you mentioned Africa, people here, famine and hunger and just things that are generally not positive, right? Uh, and they have a hard time believing that that can be mainstream. You know, right? I mean, so you fa- you faced some challenges with fundraising, but it hasn't stopped you. And I do want to get into the fact that you guys opened a a beautiful brick and mortar location, um, right in the heart of East Harlem at One Twenty Fifth and Park. Um, and I feel like what you guys are contributing, like even more so than essentially like a, a, lo- a location for your brand, is you're really contributing to the community in so many ways. Um, so, I mean, I would like to talk a little bit about, about your cafe, Jinjin Cafe. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess like if you could quickly tell us like, why did you want to open a cafe? Like what was the thought process behind that? So we part, partly, um, influenced by the, the, the reactions we kept getting from, especially investors, right? Like, so the idea of having a brick and mortar component to the, to the business as a whole was always part of the picture. But we started realizing that, okay, when we tell people, hey, we're trying to bring the market African-inspired food and drink and all these other things down the line, uh, and we come to them with this product, our go-to-market product, um, they get, like, focused on that one product, right? Your one-product company or... You make ginger juice. I don't know. They start like going, like going really deep on. I don't know if everyone likes ginger and blah blah blah. Like guys, we just told you we'll have a hibiscus paste drink. We'll have some of these snacks that are street foods in Africa. We'll have all these other things, and you're hyper focused on just the ginger. Right. right. And you do um, have these at the cafe. We do have these because I've, I've been to the cafe and I've I've tried a number of the beverages. You have the bisap. Um, right. Which is uh, it's a hibiscus based um, uh, drink. Uh, you can have it. I mean, all of our drinks you can have them hot or cold. Actually, so it's, the hibiscus is amazing. It's made with um, fresh uh, dried hibiscus leaves, uh, cinnamon, cardamom, cloves, and it's just added. It's all amazing. We have a kinkiliba, which is um, a very hardy, um, resilient bush tea that grows in marginal lands throughout West Africa. Uh, super high in antioxidants, caffeine-free, very aromatic. And we also make uh, an attire at the cafe. Attire, in, in, they call it attire in Morocco, attire in most of uh, sub-Saharan West Africa. It's uh, a huge part of everyday ceremonial tea culture. It's uh, green tea leaves that are soaked with fresh men and um, sweetened with caramelized sugar. That's out of this world. Yeah, I mean, so you can get all of these like West African-inspired beverages yeah. at the cafe. And I mean, the interesting thing, though, about it contributing to the community is because, you know, often when you see a, co- a, a nice coffee house um, in an area where there hasn't been one yet, you know, like a Starbucks or something, it's like, it's a negative sign of gentrification and, and what's to come. But what you guys have accomplished is, you know, you've, you've brought this welcoming, the design, it's, it's so, um, it's so African and it celebrates the whole diaspora. And it's kind of like, uh, the counter to what one might think of with like a really nice coffee shop entering a neighborhood. How have you like fostered that community and how important was that to you when you were opening this? So in, in short, uh, what we wanted to convey with, the, with this first cafe is African hospitality in a nutshell, right? So it's, um, we wanted to create an immersive space where everything from the decor to the music to the furnishing to the service we provide to uh, some of the, to the products we sell. So we have conventional pastries that you would find at any everyday cafe and coffee drinks. But also um, we have all these specialty drinks that I mentioned and we'll start having grab and go, um, um, grain bowls, soups, sandwiches that are all traditional African uh, uh, recipes, right? Everything from tagine from, uh, from Morocco to uh, jollof rices that you find throughout West Africa to um, you know the East African dishes serve it in Jera to maybe something like pap or chakalaka you would find uh, down in South Africa, right? And they will have little snacks uh, that you'll find that to be street food throughout, throughout Africa. So it's to create this immersive space that we feel will better, com- uh, that we feel will better convey what we're trying to pitch people. 
right? And the idea is to, uh, with the brick and mortar component, we can have this work there, but also use them as a billboarding effect. The idea is to have these in all major, major metropolitan areas throughout the world, right? Like New York, DC, LA, London, you name it. I love that you mentioned uh, you're trying to convey like this African hospitality. Because yeah. that is one thing, like as a customer of this cafe, like not only have you guys like transformed the block, because the block used to be like way less savory <laughs> than it is now yeah. to use I have nice words. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it kind of reminds me of like New York City of some bygone era, yeah. like the New York that I've watched on television but haven't seen, where you like, you know, the the person who's who's giving you your cappuccino in the morning, they know your name, they ask about your kids, they ask how you're doing. They own the shop, they live in the they, neighborhood. They own the yeah. shop, they yeah. live in the neighborhood. Um, you know, and they have an immigrant story of entrepreneurialism, which is so much of New where York. New York was, but but really isn't for the most part exactly, anymore. Exactly, because we've all gotten pushed out by Starbucks, yeah. <laughs> ironically. So, um, you know, I, I did just kind of want to mention that, but... I had, before we wrap up, I want to ask a, a bigger question yeah. around... You've, you've done so many different things in your life, uh, you know, a, a college and master's degree in material sciences and particularly focused on biomedical devices, sure. uh, worked in hospitality, obviously, as a bartender. Uh, you were also sort of a semi-professional soccer player, which we have not touched <laughs> at all in this interview. So are there like what are some specific lessons that you learned from each one of those experiences and how have you applied them in the day to day of your of your current sure. business businesses, I should say? My brother, the much better soccer player. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, the engineering, I really do feel so all of it. Right. Uh, I, I, in a way, been extremely lucky with my path in life. You know, everything from being, you know, raised in a family where, you know, my mom had the trajectory she had right I've been exposed to business and things like that early on I've never had a I've never had them sit me down and say you should be an entrepreneur but I just I just was absorbing this passively uh and to my dad being like super super um focused on us getting the best education possible we can get my dad has this line where he would tell me you know what when I die I'm not going to leave you with very much but uh, I will build I will build a castle in your head you know so you can take it with you everywhere you go like, I'm not going to leave you castles. Um, to, from that to being an immigrant here in the States and having that Im- immigrant journey, right? Living in foreign places, in places where you don't know the language and having to navigate through that. You just end up being forced to learn a lot of things. You end up be, learning to be resilient, uh, self-reliant in many ways. And these are really the traits you need as an entrepreneur. And um, you, it's not really something you can get in school, you know? Uh, you have to go through it. It's brutal to go through it, but once you come out the other end, it's totally worth it. Um, and then more acad- uh, academically, getting an engineering training, being lucky enough to get a really good engineering uh, education gave us the the actual tools, right? Um, and through that education, be getting interest in finance, getting interest in all this and learning all, a lot of these tools that I at some point I was just doing because I was curious about, but just being in a place where I can access the knowledge I needed to, to acquire those, um, uh, those tools made it, like, prepared us really well to, to be able to build a business. So, uh, otherwise, although we bootstrapped this, we wouldn't have been able to bootstrap, right? So those are, those are kind of the boots, like that whole trajectory, right? Some people, unfortunately, some people are put in a position where they have to bootstrap and they don't even have boots, <laughs> you know? So that's it. That, so all, all of it has fed into who we are today, and it's been, uh, we feel, despite the challenges, we feel very fortunate, and we're in a very good position. Where can our listeners uh, buy your products? Where's your cafe? How do they find you online and on social media? Yeah, so a cafe, because I really, if you're in New York or you're traveling to New York, I very much encourage you to come visit us, because it's truly uh, a beautiful experience, and I'm a little biased in saying that, but I mean it. Uh, I, can, I can co-sign on as, that. Well, as you should be. As a regular yeah. customer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Valerie uh, holds up a table. and uh, <laughs> we, we will actually put a, give you a name tag at the, <laughs> the table. A little, little desk, uh, one of those like, office name plates. For right. Valerie. I may or may not be writing my cookbook <laughs> <laughs> oh, we want credits. Um, so the cafe is at um, 125th and Park Avenue. It's right at the foot of the Metro North Station. It's on the northwest corner of 125th and Park. Uh, online, you can find us at drinkjinjan.com. That's uh, drink, D-R-I-N-K, jinjan, G-I-N-J-A-N.com. 
on social media. You can find us on all channels at Jinjam Bros, um, B-R-O-S, not spelled out, so G-I-N-J-N-B-R-O-S. And we'll post links in, on, the, yeah. on the podcast site. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, and you can get the product if you're within New York City. You can get it in uh, Whole Foods around New York, um, but you can buy it online and we ship all over the states um, and Canada. Great. Well, um, I don't know, Valerie. Anything else before we before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I just want to I just want to <laughs> shout out like the hustle. Like, yeah, seriously. Uh, Thank you so much. You know, appreciate the, it. It's like you're living kind of like a, a startup life, right? Essentially, where you're working like yeah. how many hours a week? Oh, on a, average, a 100 to 110 hours a week. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just shout that's, out to the hustle. I do. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I mean, I would ask, like, how do, how do you balance that? Because I think with women, we always ask that. Like, how do you how do you balance, you know, the life and the job? And we're going to start asking that of men more, but mm. maybe we'll save that for next time. Do you want to ask? Yes. How do, you, how do you balance that? I don't balance it. Yeah. My yeah. Only, the only, <laughs> I mean, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I literally have my only the only thing I do is I work. I go home. I live five minutes away from the cafe right now. I wake up at 5, 5 a.m., 5.45 at the latest. I work and then get home at 8, 9 p.m. I go to bed. I do it again seven days a week. Work is life and life is work. That's there the you go. start of life. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find me on social at Foodie in New York. You can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on the socials, and Ethan at burlapandbarrel.com. Oh, I, I have to say, I had um, the Uh-oh. Vietnamese cinnamon. The royal that, cinnamon. The royal cinnamon that Ethan brought back. Uh, <laughs> and if you've never had Burlap and Barrel spices, I highly recommend it. It's out of you this haven't world. had that cinnamon, you haven't had cinnamon. Uh, you haven't had cinnamon. It's <laughs> yeah, true. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, the ginger you brought back may or may not be in some ginger cookies I baked. Oh. That I meant to pull out when we were talking about uh, watching politics and needing to bake, but well, we'll I will pull those out later. later. <laughs> um, and as always, you can reach us, uh, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, you can reach us on social at Why Food Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, anything, nominations, we're booking guests through the through the spring and summer season. So if you are an entrepreneur, if you have a friend who is an entrepreneur or a career changer, send them our way. Why Food at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Uh, thanks to Jess Krenjic for an amazing engineering job this week and every week. And thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is called Blind. And most of all, Raheem, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You feel a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. See you all next week. See you next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.